Do you have a joke? I have a joke. Okay. You said it should be a groaner. <laughs> they, and it they is. They tend to be, yeah. Knock, knock. Who's there? The interrupting cow. <laughs> interrupting. No! <laughs> Uh, I saw it coming, but I still <laughs> like it. Hello, this is The Calgarian. I'm Taylor Lambert. I'm very excited about this interview because it's a conversation with someone I admire, someone I've wanted to have on the show for a while, and it's a conversation about some topics and history that I think are really important and very often overlooked. My guest today is Cheryl Fogo, who is a writer, playwright, filmmaker, historian, basically just a very talented human being. Uh, her work covers a lot of ground, but I think it's fair to say that a majority of her work explores the black experience and black history in Western Canada, which is too often forgotten or ignored, but, uh, also far richer and noteworthy than would be indicated by the extremely limited space we allow black people in our narrative of the history of prairie settlement. We cover a lot of ground in this conversation, but for further resources and recommendations, you should check the episode notes for some links. Also, uh, during the conversation, Cheryl brings up a talk I gave on race and white privilege, but neither of us uh, explain anything about it in the conversation, so I've linked to that video in the episode notes as well. And one last thing, unfortunately, there were some recording issues with my microphone, uh, which are apparent at the beginning, but they get fixed a little bit later on in the episode. Anyways, you can hear Cheryl just fine, which is really all that matters. And one day, I promise, I will actually be a semi-competent audio technician. And now, here is my conversation with Cheryl Fogo. You know, it's, it's my three-year-old grandson's favorite joke, so I thought I'd bust it out. That's a great joke. <laughs> okay, so you are a playwright a filmmaker, a writer of multiple genres, you've won many awards, you have a 30th anniversary edition of your landmark book, Pouring Down Rain, out this year. Um, you might be like one of the most intimidating people I've had on this podcast. Aww. <laughs> well, don't be intimidated. Um, well, it's, you've had quite the career. Um, I think maybe to start with, because of where so much of your work is grounded and how I want to, with the things I want to talk about this conversation, maybe let's start with just your background um, in Calgary and your, your family history. Sure. Well, I was born in Calgary. I am the descendant of a group of black pioneers who came up. We call it the Black Migration of 1910 for the sake of simplicity, but between 1905 and 1912, a group of approximately 1,500 African Americans came to Western Canada, specifically to Saskatchewan and Alberta. Both sets of my maternal great-grandparents were a part of that migration. They went to the community of 
well, what we call the Eldon District in Saskatchewan. It's close to Maidstone, Turtleford, northern Saskatchewan, essentially. And the rest of the people created four small black communities in Alberta. So the, the largest and best known of those is Amber Valley. That's the one people have sometimes heard of. It was uh, about 350 people that went there, so that was the largest. It is also believed to be or have been the most northerly settlement of black people anywhere in the world. So yeah, I was, uh, I was a part of, I'm a descendant of that migration, and as a result, I like to share stories through all the different ways that I write about that community because it's a very unknown community even though the stories are incredibly compelling. Um, the people were really interesting and amazing and had struggles, but also had incredible triumphs. It's, it's just a really interesting story that I think is underexposed. Um, I know that um, you've said that your, your particular family history, uh, they, the reason they were, they were migrating was from the newly created state of Oklahoma. That's right. Was that the primary cause of the migration? Was this the state of Oklahoma or was there, I mean, not that black folks had needed a better reason to leave the southern United States at the time, but like, was there a reason for this specific migration at this specific time? Yes, it was kind of a perfect storm of reasons. They had gone to that part of the world before Oklahoma was a state. At that time, it was divided into two territories. One was known as the Western Territory, and one was known as the Indian Territory. So if you look on my grandfather's birth certificate, it says he was born in the Indian Territory. When the state of Oklahoma was formed, those territories were combined to make the state, and the white people who had created the state of Oklahoma were very determined to squash terrify, murder, treat this community of black people who had gone there in the first place because they were getting away from the lack of human rights that they were experiencing in the other states where they had been enslaved or where their parents had been enslaved. So they lost their voting rights, they lost their property rights, people, lynchings increased tenfold, twentyfold, thirtyfold, it was, it was very common. I think the thing that was most disheartening was that people had worked really hard and, and had created communities of wealth and success. And my great-grandfather, Rufus Sadler-Smith, was living with his family one block over from Greenwood Avenue, which is the center of the Greenwood Massacre, or what we've come to think of now as a Black Wall Street uh, massacre. So people knew it as Black Wall Street, where they were living. And although my great-grandparents had already left before that infamous massacre took place, uh, about nine years after they left, the conditions that led to that massacre were very much in place in the state of Oklahoma. The violence and just um, total suppression of their rights. They had created this community that was just aligned, streets lined with beautiful homes, and they were doctors and dentists and, and uh, upwardly mobile people who then had that community completely leveled, destroyed, bombs dropped from above, um, 
many, many, many of my great-grandparents' neighbors and friends and colleagues died in that massacre that took place after they left. So that kind of sets the stage for the reason why they were looking to get out of there. At exactly the same time, the Canadian government was advertising for specifically American farmers to come up to this part of the world because they wanted people to break the land. Um, I hate that term, break the land, but that's what they were looking for, that's how they described it. And my ancestors had been singing about Canada specifically in their music for decades and even more than a century because the spirituals, the body of music that we know as spirituals, is full of references to escaping to freedom that are veiled as references about heaven or the promised land or Canaan land. Those references weren't only referring to Canada in every case, but my ancestors definitely thought of Canada as the promised land. So when the Canadian government started sending out these invitations, uh, they felt that the, the combination of those two circumstances, the horrific things they were experiencing there and this invitation that they saw being extended from the Canadian government was a call for them to come here. Generally, they were very religious people. They were Christians and believed that God had a place for them somewhere. And those are the two major reasons. There are other factors as well that I, you know, I won't take the time to go into now, but essentially that was, that was the, the rationale behind them coming at that specific moment in time. That's a, that's a pretty significant group of people. It is, yeah. Um, especially coming to Western Canada at that time, which was, you know, not terribly populated. Um, do you know uh, uh, how they were welcomed by uh, white settlers at the time? Perhaps welcomed is the wrong word. Yes, they were... Um, they, they met individuals who were good, mm -hmm. and they had neighbors who were good and kind, but in general, the official welcome was not there. They were very surprised by it. They had a very different understanding of what they were coming to. They knew they were coming to bad weather, but they didn't know they were coming to very serious systemic racism. So there were many petitions. Every major city that was in contact in any way with these communities had petitions Boards of trade got up petitions. Politicians were talking about this migration in the House of Commons. You you can or the the Parliament. You can go back and look through the transcripts and see that it was a big deal. Um, there was violence that they experienced in some cases. The newspapers were particularly vicious in talking about this migration. So there are many, many headlines that I often show in slides. Canada will bar the Negro out, Negroes not wanted in the province of Alberta. Those are the kinds of headlines that they would open their morning newspapers and read. So that was quite shocking for them. Um, and it's an unfortunate aspect of our history that 
we don't hear about, and I actually think we would be all, all Canadians would be better off if we had a better reckoning with that kind of history, because we're still in a place in this part of the world where people think not only does racism not happen now, but that it never did. This was just such a welcoming country, and we tend to focus on the positive aspects of our race relations, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. um, and there are some positive elements to that history, but overwhelmingly the experience was not what we think of as the Canadian experience going back to those, you know, going back more than a century. Mm -hmm. And I think if we did have a better understanding of yesterday, we sure would have a better understanding of today. Yeah. And we wouldn't keep thinking that, every time a racist incident happens, it's an incident, or it's just that one time, or it's just that one bad individual, it's that one bad egg. I think we really have to have a better understanding that this is a part of what this nation is and has been. I definitely want to talk more about Canada's uh, questionable relationship with its history, um, but first I want to jump ahead to your childhood in Calgary growing up. Um, this uh, family history that you just related was this something that you grew up knowing as a child? Was this sort of like uh, stories passed down in your family or was it something that you learned about later? That's such a great question. I guess because it was a part of our blood, on one level, I did grow up hearing about some of it. But my mom and her family, that was, you know, the, the biggest part of the formation of how I felt about the country that I lived in, were incredibly, very fiercely loyal Canadians. So they tended to view the racism that they encountered as well as, um, as incidents that happened in isolation. They were very, very keen to think that this was a better place. I mean, they had my great-grandparents packed what they could bring with them and gave up, as I said, a lot. They gave up a lot to come here. And the notion that it might not have been as good a choice for their descendants as they thought it was, was quite painful. Uh, they also, I think, were really ready to resist because they had decided this was their home. They weren't going anywhere else. By that time, you know, by the time I was born, you know, now we were into the third and I guess fourth generation in some cases of people that were born here. So they tended to downplay racism. They talked about individual cases. So my grandparents did talk about um, when they first moved to Winnipeg and they got a letter, they got a hate letter in their mailbox the very first day they moved in saying, you're not welcome here. They did talk about things like that, but not as part of a system at around about the age of seven, eight, nine, I started getting really interested in the stories that people were sharing, in particular my grandparents and my, my mom and her siblings. I guess it was around then that I started paying attention. I'm going to assume that these things were already talked about, but I just wasn't yet able to process them or take them in. It wasn't until my mid to late teens that I really started to take note. By that time, I was already somewhere in the unformed part of my consciousness. I was thinking I would want to be a writer or that if, if I had lived in a different time, place, space, that I would be a writer. 
I started really paying attention to the stories at that point. And then I started asking questions. And then my questions became more pointed. And then I started to learn more of this history. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the time and place in Calgary that you grew up in? Um, what, what was it like? What do you remember about it? I grew up in Bonas before it was part of the city of Calgary. It was its own separate town until I, I think that we were absorbed into Calgary in 1962 or 63, somewhere in the 60s. Yeah, Yeah. Um, I was born in the 50s, so I grew up in the 50s and 60s. And in the early 70s, we moved out of Bonas, but that was my formative place. I was just actually looking at a clip from my film, John Ware Reclaimed, that is a conversation between my brother and myself where we were talking about our childhood. And he was pointing out that the kids that are in the photos of our birthday parties and that kind of thing, those were our friends. Those were, you know, for the most part, those were white kids. Although we had six or seven black families in Bonas in our immediate vicinity, all who were descendants of the same migration. So often in school, there might be one other black child in our classes. There was sometimes a Chinese child in our classes, but for the most part, we lived among white people in Bonas. We had many friends in the neighborhood, but we also had many people who hated us. We definitely were exposed to hate even in our home communities of Bonesse. But as my brother and I were saying in this interview that I was just looking at earlier this morning, we knew where those homes were and you knew which places to avoid and you knew which people to avoid. It was when you had to leave the confines of your own neighborhood that it got really scary because we had to go through the process of exposing people to our existence over and over and over again. I was filled with dread as a child if we had to go to a strange playground because I knew what would happen. I knew it. It was inevitable. Kids would start calling us names. Sometimes they would throw rocks. Sometimes they'd pick fights. My brothers, my two older brothers, had to fight our way out of situations. So there were a lot of painful incidents in our childhood related to racism While at the same time, of course, we had our our friends and we even had our allies, people who I would describe as allies now. Those those people would really stand toe-to-toe with you and if they were with us when we were attacked, they they would be on our side and they would fight with us if they had to, fight for us. Um... So it was a real mixed bag. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like it, but it sounds like you grew up with a fairly challenging childhood in which you were made to be very aware at all times of your separateness, of, of being different from everyone else, from the other kids who were throwing rocks. I'm curious, like, how did you process that as you got older, as you um, became an adult? Um, how did you avoid, I guess, just becoming deeply bitter about all those experiences. When you're a kid, your life is just your life, and you accept it. Whatever your lot is in life as a child, you accept it. So I was confused when I encountered those sorts of experiences because we also grew up with the narrative that racism doesn't happen in Canada. So it was very puzzling. (laughs) (laughs) when it happened again and again and again. 
Uh, that was extremely difficult to process, and that's the thing that it really took me a long time to unravel and come to terms with as an older person looking back on my childhood. I had a very supportive inner circle. I, I like to describe it as almost I grew up in a magical realm that was beside the world that the white kids in my neighborhood were growing up in, but that they knew nothing about. It was like almost like a hidden secret world, although, you know, there were times I would bring a friend to my uncle's church or I would bring a friend, you know, to my aunt and uncle's for dinner and, and they would be exposed to that world in those kinds of ways. But I had a very supportive community. The black community in Calgary was very tight-knit, very supportive. And I felt a, a sense of betrayal as an adult when I looked back on my childhood and placed it within the context of the wider experience of racism and specifically anti-black racism that my community experienced from the time that they arrived in 1905-1910 through to my own lifetime and carrying on. I felt a sense of betrayal by Canada in general, that they had, they were gaslighting me, they were denying my experiences over and over and over again. You know, this country was held up as a place where racism simply was not a factor. So I felt a sense of betrayal on, on the one hand from them. I also felt a little bit of a sense of betrayal because of the lack of talking about it and the lack of acknowledgement of what really was happening, even in my own community. Betrayal is not the right word. It was surprise, and I had some understanding of why they didn't want to share the really awful things that had happened to them that had gone before because people just remained so optimistic that that was all a part of the past. So I felt a sense of surprise and, and puzzlement about why, why didn't my aunts and uncles talk about these things? Why didn't the people in the community talk about the things that had happened to their grandparents and their parents and their great-grandparents when they came? So it was... Um, it took a long time, a really long time to process. It was incredibly painful. I wrote an article, it was published in a book called Remembering Chinook Country. And um, I did a really deep dive into the racism that people had experienced at that time. Probably that was the first time I had done a really, really deep dive, really gone through just uh, pages and pages of records about the hate that was leveled at our community. And I took about a year to get over slash through. I mean, you don't get over it, but it took me about a year to not just be walking around in terrible pain to think about those things that had happened in my city, in my province, in my region, and in my country. I also, at around the same time, started to see a parallel between my community and the indigenous people who lived here, who had been living here for centuries before anybody came, and began to have a better understanding of our relation, our, the relationship between 
black people and indigenous people and black people and Chinese people, I began to understand that we all had relationships because I was looking at primary sources and in those primary sources I was uncovering systems that had been designed to disadvantage all of those groups of people. And that was also shocking. It sounds silly to say it was shocking now, but you know, Keep in mind, I'm talking about research I was doing 20, 20 years ago. I simply did not know. I did not know the extent to which the government and the church and the police and the, tra- the fur traders and the whiskey traders all worked together to destroy the indigenous people that were here and that we were also collateral damage. We were a part of that attempted destruction, keeping out, closing doors. And going back, my very long-winded answer to your question (laughs) about how did I not become bitter? So bitterness takes your life away from you, right? It sucks the joy out of your life. And it doesn't actually do a single thing to the people that you would punish with your bitterness if you could. It really doesn't. It punishes you. Now, that, is, that sounds a bit trite, and it's a thing that was said to me repeatedly that made me very angry. You know, like, do not tell me not to be bitter. Do not tell me not to be angry. So I think I preserved my inner core. My inner being is one that is a kind and generous and loving person. That is a part of my legacy that comes from, you know, my mom, her siblings, my grandmother, my grandfather, their parents, only one of whom I knew, this wide community that just wrapped its arms so lovingly around me, it would be crushing to them if I allowed those experiences to suck the life out of me, to suck the joy out of me. So I don't. I... I, I lay claim to my inherent right to experience joy and to experience happiness and to feel a sense of belonging. That is not to say that I don't get very, very angry at times. I do. Of course I do. It is not to say that I never experience bitterness. Of course I do. But my work has been an incredible cathartic experience in a way. Just telling the story. I am so devoted to telling this story. I think of that as my my mission in a way. I guess my mission has helped me, even though it has exposed me to these stories, and sometimes it's very painful to sit in them. It has also given me a reason to be and to do what I do, and an outlet for my creative impulses that were born into me. They were very apparent at a very young age. You gave a presentation last month at the library called Mapping Black Calgary. Mm-hmm. And it was wonderful. Thank you. It was, I am a nerd. I am a local history nerd specifically. Uh, I'm a nerd too. Yes, we are professional nerds. <laughs> but there was a ton of stuff in there, like the vast majority of it that I had never heard of, I had no idea about Calgary's local black history. Um, I want to talk about that, and I think maybe the best place to start is with 
your affinity for John Ware. Um, you've said that as a little kid, despite all the racism that you endured, you were very much uh, a fan of cowboys. Indeed. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit and, and uh, how you first heard about John Ware? Black people, all Canadians absorb our Canadian narratives. And one of the narratives that was very strong and prevalent when I was a kid in Calgary was the cowboy narrative. Man, my brother and I just loved that. We played cowboys every weekend and we consumed all that cowboy and cowgirl media. My brother saved up for a pony for years until eventually he realized he wasn't ever going to get one and then <laughs> spent the money on a bicycle. Um, yeah, we loved that. We loved pretending we were out on the open range and lying under the stars. And uh, We often fantasized that we were sleeping in a teepee because we had an affinity for the Indigenous people in those stories. Mm -hmm. So we often imagined that we, you know, pulled up our horses and you know, that the Blackfoot took us in and gave us, shared their food and we slept in the teepee and you know, around the fire and stuff. We, we just had a great time as kids loving that narrative. And then eventually started to see, you know, where are we in these, you know, where are we in that movie? <laughs> where are we in that book? Where are we in that TV show? And started to feel um, that that was a very nerdy aspect of our childhoods that we should probably just put aside because that wasn't for us. We didn't feel invited into that world. Neither my brother or I remember the exact moment that we first heard of John Ware. But John Ware's children were elders in our community. So many people that I knew extremely well knew Nettie and Bob Ware specifically, and Mildred less, less well because she was incredibly shy, Mildred Jr., but Nettie and Bob were very well known in our community. So we, I, I saw the two Ware sisters one time at my aunt and uncle's house. Had no idea who they were. They were just two old people like anybody else. <laughs> so we're, neither of us are, are sure when we first heard the name John Ware. All we know is that when Richard went to the Glenbow Museum in grade six, we think it was grade six or seven, and saw the John Ware display, a light bulb went off at that point. Like, oh, he's black. <laughs> he's not just a cowboy that we've <laughs> heard reference to. And that was an amazing experience for both of us because all of a sudden we went, wait a minute. You mean we are there in that history? You mean we were there? You mean those games that we played as kids and eventually shelved could really belong to us. So it was, uh, he was, uh, became a very important figure in terms of me uniting those two aspects of my identity, my very strong and powerful identity as a Western Canadian, specifically a Southern Albertan. I've never known any other home. I was born here. You know, my mom went to Western Canada High School. That was who I was, but I'm also a person of African descent and I share a whole history with other people of African descent. And finding out about John Ware allowed me to unite or marry those two identities was incredible. And I love him, and I feel 
an incredible connection to him, to his wife, Mildred, to their kids. I sure wish I had known now who those old people were in the room at my aunt and uncle's house. It's, yeah, it's, it's a very powerful connection that I feel to the Ware story, specifically because he was a cowboy and I was a cowgirl. Yeah. Well, it's certainly a story that you've come back to time and again in mm -hmm. your career. You wrote a play called John Ware Reimagined, mm -hmm. and you have a film coming out this year called John Ware Reclaimed. Right. Um, why do you think, I mean, obviously this personal connection to John Ware and his story and the, the meaning that it has for you personally makes a lot of sense. I'm wondering why you come back to it as a storyteller. What value do you think there is in there for uh, modern audiences? I'm uncomfortable with the way John Ware's story has been told in the past. There are many elements of it that make me deeply uncomfortable. To my knowledge, his story has never been told at length or in depth by any person of African descent. So nobody who shares that aspect of his identity has ever told his story. So I think it's very important that I provide my, my perspective on his story. And I, I, I'm not going to go into all the reasons why I feel uncomfortable with the way his story has been shared in the past. People can come see the film and learn more about that. Um, as a storyteller, essentially I have this one big story to tell, which is the story of black Western Canada, black Calgary, black Southern Alberta. When I write a play, when I write, you know, when I make a film, when I write a book, when I write a kid's book, when I write a journalistic piece, there's generally some element of that story that I'm trying to tell by bringing the individual stories of people within that history to the forefront. So I don't think I will forever keep returning to the story of John Ware, but I want to reach as many people as I can with that story. And it's not always the same audience that goes to a play that will also see a film or that will read a book or that will read a magazine article. Well, you, you also had different approaches to the play and the film. That's to, right. To the story, right? That's right, yeah. And that uh, goes back to my creative impulse that is inborn within me. I just love to tell stories. And each of those different genre uh, allows a different approach and you know in the play I got to be in the world with him I put myself in his time and I brought him forward into mine that was really magical um, but in the film you know in a documentary film you can tell a story in a completely different way and you know it's much more fact-based and there's not a whole lot of fantasy elements in it so yeah, there are just, there are different different ways of satisfying myself as an artist, as a creative individual, by telling this story in different ways, and it's also allowing me to reach different audiences. Let's go back to uh, Calgary's local history and the black role in it, because I so I partially grew up in Calgary, and it was interesting listening to you talk about um, your upbringing and the the things you were taught, the culture you absorbed. Like we're we're from a different generation, but it doesn't sound terribly dissimilar to like my education. Uh, I grew up not like there's a, a the narrative of Canada is 
hasn't changed that much over the past half century. And I didn't know much about indigenous people until I was much older, much past school in age. And I certainly didn't know anything about any black presence in early Calgary and people in the community. And your presentation really just opened a lot of very interesting doors <laughs> for me. And I think that's something, that's part of the reason I wanted to have you here is because I feel like this is something that really very few people know about in the city and it's an important part of our history. Can you talk a little bit about the role that um, the black community played in early Calgary? We lived generally in Victoria Park, East Village, or what, what people called East Calgary at that time in Inglewood. The black community was quite restricted in terms of where we could live. There were lots of, there was lots of discrimination in housing, jobs, and whatnot. And so most of the men worked for the railroad companies, and thus it was convenient to live near the railroad companies, but they had to fight really, really hard to be able to live in those spaces. And as I said, there was kind of a parallel existence. So my mom talks about how in the evenings people would walk to each other's homes. People would visit. Everybody had a cake on the counter because you did not have someone come into your house and not have any food to give them. And the men played cards and, you know, the women did all the things that women were expected to do at that time. Um, people really supported each other. People visited on, on, on steps. So when I talk to people about Calgary, I want people to envision that. People walk around East Village now, and it's very changed, and, you know, beautiful, giant condos and whatnot, but I really like people to envision a whole different world, this parallel world of blackness that was so alive, was so filled with love and music and the best food ever. And yes, many, many, many challenges. And I am not trying to pretend that everybody in the community got along. You know, people had fights and um, there was a, there were two, two chicken restaurants, the Chicken Fry and the Chicken Inn. And in some ways, both were somewhat notorious because all the black people were welcome there, whether they were struggling people, whether they were women who had no other option but to uh, work in the sex trade, whether they were people struggling with addiction, or whether they were, you know, the, the future lawyers or the, the Oliver Bowens, the future engineers who designed the C-Train in Calgary. All of those people came together in those spaces, and I get really frustrated when I hear white people talking about those restaurants because it's always with a nudge and a wink and, oh, yeah, you know, that's the place where you could get more than chicken, blah, blah, blah. Um, it was, there was just way more to the community than the tiny little glimpse that the very few white people got into the community. I guess I walk with those ghosts everywhere that I go in this city, especially in the downtown area, especially when I'm in the East Village. I don't necessarily see that condo that's standing in front of me. I see that tiny little storefront place where my uncle held his church services for the first few years because he couldn't get a building. And I see, those, I see the people strolling across the street to go and have a piece of cake one block over and three doors down. Um, in many ways, it was very beautiful. 
and such a different perspective on what pioneer life or, you know, 30s, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s life was like in Calgary. As you said, it, you know, it, it opens doors to you just in terms of your understanding of what went before. And we are all our past. Our past is never in the past. That has been said by many smart people long before me. But it is so apparent to me that we, you and I sitting in this room across from each other right now, are our collective past and we're deeply impacted by it. And our stories enrich each other's lives. I listened to your, uh, I watched your um, TED Talk. Oh, no, it wasn't a TED Talk. It was a, a Pecha Kucha. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Pecha Kucha. Yeah. Or, or, yeah. Or However it is said, yeah. yes. I watched that. And I guess I feel like through the sharing of stories, we, we learn to care about each other. Or we have insight you know, that, that, that sharing that you did gave me insight into the kind of world that you grew up in and the kind of education you had that denied you access to these really important both facts and stories that are helpful to you now as you navigate your way through the world and that give you a, a better understanding. So I, I feel like Stories are pretty well the best tool we have to try to move forward into a collective future that's better. But our past never leaves us. We carry it with us all the time. And I feel like Canadians who don't have access to my story or my ancestral story are aware on some level that they're missing something. And it's when they get access to it. And I think you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but you probably had some aha moments, you know, when you were watching my presentation thinking, oh, okay, you know, that makes sense to me. Or now yeah. I understand, you might understand someone that's in your life now differently or better. So at the very least, I think it gives you, um, it gives me a better understanding of my city and my community. And it just adds to that narrative of who we are collectively. As mm -hmm. you said, our collective, we are our collective stories. But I think it's also fair to say that we're our respective stories in the sense that you, you, you mentioned when you were younger that you uh, um, sort of recognized the similarities between you and Indigenous kids or you and Chinese kids in that you were both ostracized to some extent because of your, uh, the color of your skin. And I think there's still a failure by a lot of white Canadians to recognize that non-white Canadians experience our cities, our world, our country, our society, our legal systems, like every aspect of our society very differently in ways that we can only understand by shutting up and listening. I guess I'm curious, as someone who has lived in Calgary for her whole life and seen a lot of change and has rooted a lot of her work in examining race and the black experience in the Canadian prairies. How do you feel about where we are right now, about how much has changed and how much has not changed? I feel discouraged. I feel like there are experiences that 
I'm having now or that the young people in my life are having now that I thought they would not experience anymore. I think there's been an expectation that, you know, things just keep getting better, but I realize now that this is not... So the the quest for equity in society is not going to go away, and it's not going to go away easily. You said that... Um, there's a reluctance on the, the part of white Canadians to understand that people of color experience our cities and towns and our world differently. And I think some of that is because of ignorance and lack of access to these stories. And when I say ignorance, I don't mean necessarily willful ignorance. If nobody gives you access to information, it can be difficult to find it. Um, some people, a rare person, will will look around and say, "Wait a minute, though. You know, I, I think there's a different, there's something different going on here than what I have understood in the past." But it can be quite hard to access information, especially when there are many people in power who would prefer that you not have access to that information, those stories. They would prefer the narrative that has always existed. It is they feel their job to conserve that narrative. I see a lot more willingness on the part of younger white Calgarians and Canadians, a certain a certain cohort of younger white people to sit and listen and and be and not feel defensive or not feel that you're you know you're being lied to. Um, because I have had experiences in my past where people simply do not believe what I'm telling them. They think I'm lying. <laughs> Why they think I would bother to stand up in front of a room and lie, I don't know. But the, the one thing that gives me hope is that younger black people than me are refusing to accept stuff that I did accept and that I did think, well, that's just the way the world is. And I find a, a lot of younger black women inspire me so much because they open my eyes and say, no, you know, I like, I'm, I'm actually not going to accept that or that's not going to be the way it is. So I think that's great. I also um, meet a, lo a lot of young white Canadians who are recognizing that the system is not fair and are willing to be allies. But there's a gigantic, much bigger than I thought, segment of society that is still very willing to engage in both overt and covert and systemic racism in every, every way that it can be deployed against people. And that's really discouraging and disheartening. So I don't have a tidy answer to that question. I really don't. Yeah, I don't think anybody does. Um, I th we were talking before about Canada's relationship with its history, and I think that comes into play here uh, in terms of that last group you were talking about, the people who are, I think, deeply invested in the false narrative of Canada as this kind nation of kind people with nothing dark in its past. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from comparing ourselves to the U.S. and saying we're not them, we're better than them, 
we don't have all these awful race problems here when we, we did have slavery and, you know, we have our nation built on genocide. Just the, the furor around that word when that report came out not that long ago. I mean, we can't even begin to have a real conversation about this. So we're still a long way away. It's a depressing question, but uh, how, uh, how hopeful are you that we can find a way to grapple with our history as a first step towards understanding how far we are from equality? I would not and could not do what I do if I didn't have some hope that it will make a difference. That simply by bearing witness to the story and writing it down in itself is an act of resistance and it is a gift that I give to this city and this country. It is a gift that I contribute toward a more hopeful time because I genuinely believe when people know better, they can then do better. As um, I think it was Maya Angelou who said, that is, that is why I will continue to do what I do. I wouldn't do it if I didn't think there was any hope that it will have an impact. When that impact will be felt, I don't know, because it's, uh, it's very difficult for some people, especially of my generation, to accept that this narrative that they've always believed in isn't true, or isn't completely true. Some aspects of it are true. I happen to like Canadians very much, <laughs> and uh, I have encounters with sweet and lovely Canadians all the time, people of many different races. I maybe used to feel more hopeful that we had the best chance of any nation in the world of actually coming to terms with how do you create true equity in society for all people. So as you said, we're a very long way away from that. I think it really has to begin with truthfully acknowledging our relationship to the people who were here when we came. That's the most important aspect of moving forward because until we all learn in school about the genocide that took place we are not going to be able to resolve these very difficult challenges that we face alongside that i think we have to understand that not every group has experienced canada the same either so you know i used to identify much more strongly as a person of color generally. I recognize now that my history as a person of African descent is distinct and that my experience of the world is not the same as the granddaughter or great-granddaughter of Chinese immigrants and it's not the same as the a descendant of our Muslim community that's also quite old in, in terms of its time of arrival in this part of the world. I think we have to recognize that too. It's a much more nuanced and complex question than what we've been asking in the past. We have nuanced and very complex challenges ahead of us. I do continue to, to hold out hope. If people want to learn more about Black history in Calgary specifically, um, do you have any advice and resources? 
Yes. Um, people. Some, someone should write a book about it. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah, and in fact, I am working on a book called Mapping Black Calgary, <laughs> 1880 through 1960, that you know I hope will come out in the next couple of years. I have a publisher lined up, and I'm working with another descendant of the migration, a man named Leander Lane, who is writing about the Saskatchewan piece of the story. We really hope that those will be resources that are brought into the schools. I think Pouring Down Rain is a really good introduction to Black Calgary, really, you know, any of my work that people can find, um, various articles that I've written over the years is helpful. But there are other people that are doing work around this story as well. Um, There are many visual artists from the community that are telling the story through images, like Philip Risby, my cousin. Deanna Bowen is a person who now lives in Toronto. She's also a descendant of this community. She does a lot of multimedia and interdisciplinary works that are incredible for shedding light on this the story of this migration um, more broadly. In terms of Black Calgary itself, there aren't, uh, you know, there aren't a lot of other historians apart from myself that are writing about this story, but uh, I do encourage people to come see the film, John Ware Reclaimed, when it comes out, and, uh, you know, pick up a copy of Pouring Down Rain. So there are resources, if people are willing to seek them out, and I'm just going to keep adding to them. (laughs) I'm so grateful for all the work that you do. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. That's it for the show. Big thanks to Cheryl Fogo. You should absolutely go pick up a copy of Pouring Down Rain. And while you're waiting for her John Ware film to come out, go check the episode notes for a link to another short film that she made. The Calgarian is hosted and produced by me, Taylor Lambert. Theme music is Dandelion by Ghostkeeper. If you like this show, please feed and water it. Share it on social media. Leave a review in your podcast app or show your support on Patreon. Visit thecalgarian.ca for more details. Thanks for listening. Mm